Our scripture passage for this morning is in the book of John, chapter 4, as we read this morning from verses 27 through 45. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not do you not say there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So here, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the feast, at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, you remind us in the scripture that you are a good father who gives us what we need when we need it most. If we ask you for a loaf of bread, you are too kind to give us a stone in its place. And so we ask you to provide for us today from your word through the work of your spirit. Help us today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. What is better than food? Uh, For the last few months, I've been dieting. And I think I would answer that question differently now than I would have before I was dieting. Uh, Because before, if you said, what's better than food? I, I, I could have certainly listed some things, but I could not have given you a very long list. There would not be a lot of things I would mention that are better than food. Um, now, there is something about how I've, I've changed my eating habits. I still love food. I love food, but I've had to learn to go without it. I've had to learn to say no to myself, and you probably can relate if you've tried to watch what you eat. And what you have to do is you start to have, say no to yourself, and you have to say no to your desires in some way. 
and maybe in a way that you never have before. Um, it's been very difficult to change that way of thinking, that way of thinking that says, if I want something, I must have it. If I want something, it's the most important thing. Uh, that desire to have something is, is, is of a high priority. Um, it's hard to think of all the good things that are happening when I feel hungry. You know, um, my body is working and it is burning unneeded fat. Those are thoughts that you have to remember uh, as you go hungry. And to do this, you know, it sort of required a mind change that I am still in the process of learning to accept so that I will think differently about food. But here's what's interesting to me. In our passage this morning, Jesus is thinking differently about food, maybe than you're used to thinking. And by the way, I'm not approaching this as a diet. This is not a, it's not a diet sermon. Um, but but I, what, what's interesting to me, though, is the way Jesus thinks about food here. Because Jesus, think about this, what happens. Jesus has had this long conversation with this woman. And we've, we've spent now over a month just looking at his conversation with her and how he ministers to her and how he sort of helps her to understand her needs. And then back in chapter 8 of, of John, we saw that, uh, that the disciples had left Jesus to go buy food. That provided the occasion in which the, uh, he had this conversation with the woman. And now here they are. They've come back to Jesus. And as they come back to Jesus, he's talking to this woman. And John tells us what they're thinking when they show up. What they're thinking is, what do you want with this lady? Why are you talking to this woman? And of course, they say nothing, but these are all things that they're thinking. And so the woman takes off once they arrive. And when she does, the interesting thing is that John notes for us that she leaves behind her water jug. Now, this is a very small, minor note, but John makes sure to note it for us. And then his disciples tell him, eat, eat, you need, to, you need to get your strength, you need to eat, this is your chance. And Jesus responds to the disciples by saying, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Basically, what is he saying to them? He's saying to them, there is something here that is better than a meal. This woman's life has been changed. This whole region is just teeming with souls waiting to be harvested. And you care about putting food into your bodies. There are things that are more important than that going on. And this is the thing that strikes me. This is the thing that makes this not a diet sermon, as if something exists, as if that exists. Um, the only way you can say no to something, and in this case, the example is food. But the only way you can say no to something is if you have something you want and you love more than that thing. Jesus finds precisely that today. Jesus finds something that he loves more, in this case, than food. You see, for Jesus, his priorities go beyond food. Food just becomes, for Jesus, a means to an end. For Jesus, food is a thing that helps him live instead of a thing to live for. And at this point, he has no patience for the sort of distraction the disciples are proposing to him. To be honest, I see Jesus' response, and I want that kind of response, and I, I hope you do too. Not, not about food, but I want, I want all of us, I want for me, I want it for you, for us to love the idea of souls coming to Christ more than we love other pleasures in our life. Um, to have that sort of attitude that loves what's happening here even more than the most pleasant human activities so that those things sort of fade away into disinterest compared to the eternal weighty things that really matter. 
There are three things Jesus sees that get him so excited this morning. And there are all three things that unfold in the narrative here. We have a brand new witness. That gets Jesus excited. We have a believing response. You better believe that gets Jesus excited. And then, uh, and then we see a beautiful harvest. And you know that gets Jesus excited because he spends a lot of time talking about it here. And what God wants for us this morning is he wants us to make Jesus's priorities our priorities. He wants Jesus's priorities to be our priorities. So in order to do that, we have to see things the way Jesus sees them. And that means looking closer at what happens here this morning. And so first, Jesus gets excited by a brand new witness. Uh, Easily the most precious I think precious and beautiful thing in the world has to be, at least among the most precious things, is witnessing the early growth of a new believer in Jesus. That new, early enthusiasm that people have when they first meet the Lord. I I don't know if you see it right away, but Jesus immediately notices a change in this woman's life. She goes into the town And she tells these people about this experience she had. And specifically, she says this. She says, can this be the Christ? Now, earlier, he literally said to her, I who speak to you am the Christ. So he told her he's the Christ. So so what she's saying here is not her asking for them to tell her if he is the Christ. This is a rhetorical statement that she's making here. It's, It's like she's actually saying, how could this not be the Christ? How could this not be the Messiah? She's not genuinely baffled or wondering if this is Jesus. From the conversation she had with Jesus to the statement he made about himself to her, the fact that he knew all of these things about her, she knows that this is the Christ. Now, how do we know that she's converted, though? Because I'm convinced that this is a converted woman by this point. And you can, you can tell she's converted because you can see the fruit. That's what Jesus says. He says, You can tell a tree by its fruit. Well, let's look at the fruit of this woman's life. We see a few crucial things that indicate she's had a conversion. First, notice that she makes a profession of faith. Uh, Rick Phillips likens a person's profession of faith in Christ to a baby who cries for the first time. Um, You know, if a baby is born, one of the most important things that they're waiting for, one of the things you're looking for if you're in the waiting room or in the, in the room where the baby's being born is you want to hear that cry. You want to hear that that baby's airways are clear. You want to hear that that baby's lungs are healthy. You want to hear that, that baby belt out a big one. You know, you just want to hear it. And that's what happens with this woman. This woman is like the baby who's just made her profession of faith. She, she, she doesn't just have a change But she tells others about what's happened to her. She professes faith in Jesus and she's eager to do it in a public way. I remember the first time that I told anyone about Jesus that I actually believed in Jesus. And the thing, the interesting thing about it was it didn't go well. So it's not a heroic story that ends with a whole city being converted like this woman. But in my case, I came to believe in Jesus. And I remember going to my friend Matt Riley and I remember telling Matt Riley. I think I shared this on a Wednesday night. Uh, But I remember telling Matt Riley, Matt, you need to sit down, man. You need to sit down because you get ready for this. This is true. Jesus is real. And I just I remember telling Matt Riley so intensely, Jesus is real. I I studied it. I looked at it. It turns out it's completely real. He actually rose from the dead. He is real. 
And I remember thinking, I remember thinking and believing, okay, any second now Matt is going to fall on his knees and we're going to have a conversion moment and I'm not going to know what to tell him to do. It didn't happen like that at all. I think I frightened Matt and he went away from me and he didn't want to be my friend anymore. Um, So sometimes things don't always work out that way. But that was my first cry. That was my first cry. And you know, if you became a believer as a child, if you, if you don't remember when you first converted, you may not have a moment like this that you can remember. Uh, but if you're older and you were older when you came to Christ, then you probably do have some kind of memory like that. Um, this is something that all of us as believers should do. If, if you've come to faith in Jesus, part of being a disciple is doing precisely this. Tell others what the Lord has done for you. Tell others what God has done in your life. And, and certainly, if you're, if you're younger, tell the elders of the church. Tell the, tell the elders of the church. Uh, we would love to welcome you, not only as a covenant child, but as a communing member of the church as well. The second thing I want you to notice here is, notice her changed life. So it's not just that she makes a profession of faith, but she has a changed life. We see this immediately, and it has to do with that water jar. The fact that John decided to, to, to note for us that she left the water jar behind. What a what an interesting, strange piece of information for John to include for us. Why do we need to know what she did with her water jar? Um, you know, it would be like saying Jesus picked up his bags or picked up his belongings and walked to another place. Why would you include that little bit of information except that he wants us to have it? Remember this. A water jar in these days is a necessity. Uh, they, don't have, <laughs> they don't have indoor plumbing. Uh, we know this woman brings her water jar when the ladies aren't around. She needs this jar. She is, and yet she totally leaves the water jar. She leaves it behind. She abandons it. And John tells us that. Now, what is the reason for leaving behind the water jar? And why does John care so much about the water jar? Well, think about this. Think about the conversation she just had with Jesus. The whole conversation was about water. And the whole conversation was about her getting hung up on physical water and about physical thirst and physical need. She's all hung up on that. And all she can think of is, I'm really glad I have this cup for drinking out of. And it's a good thing I have my my big jug of water. And all she can think is, I want the kind of water you don't have to keep coming back over and over and over again. And Jesus says to her, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. And the fact that she leaves the water jug behind means she gets it now. She gets it now. She gets the message Jesus has been trying to get into her this entire time. The abandonment of her water jar is the abandonment of her old life and her old priorities. She has the living water now. Jesus makes these, those old things, those old concerns seem tiny and silly and trivial and unimportant now by comparison. Who cares about physical water when you've just been rescued from life and death? We see her changed in the way she gives up caring about her appearance now. Think about this. She used to hide from the other women. She used to hide from the other women. When they would come around, she would steer clear. Why? Because she had a reputation. Because she was humiliated by her lifestyle. She wanted to avoid being at the well at the beginning and end of the day. So she comes in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to have to face their judgment and she doesn't want to have to face their ridicule. But look at this. She used to hide her history. And now what does she do? She blurts out her history for everybody to hear. She says, he told me everything I ever did. Not only is she admitting to everything she ever did, but she's drawing their attention 
to everything she ever did. She is letting her history become part of the conversation now. Part of following Jesus means giving up having great appearances. And it means admitting our sin. It means confessing our sin. Um, uh, my father, I remember going before the entire church and admitting that he could not stop smoking. And just, I remember him sitting in the pew and weeping, openly weeping. And people were praying for him. And I just remember my father admitting that he was addicted to smoking and he could not stop. And he didn't know how he ever would. And as a kid, that image of my father weeping openly in the pew, surrounded by people praying for him, has stuck with me. Uh, this man who uh, had a great head of hair. Uh, one of those things, at least. One of, one of his good qualities stuck with me. This fantastic great head of hair. A man who I knew most of my life, I felt like was kind of a proud man. And just seeing him weep in front of the whole church, not caring what anybody thought of him anymore sticks with you the question is will you be like this woman and confess your sin and own your sin and admit your sin this woman says i did those things they were my sins and here's the question the challenge i have for you are you an excuse maker or are you a responsibility taker When you look back, are you going to blame all of the things that you've ever done on other people and other situations? Or are you going to take responsibility for yourself? This woman admits her sin. This woman takes responsibility for her sin. You know, one of the ways we see the change in this woman's life is she does that. She owns her sin and she admits that she needs Christ. Third, we see the the change in her because she now has a concern for evangelism. What is evangelism? The word, the word evangel just means good news. And the word evangelism just means taking it to other people, sharing the good news. It means telling the good news. Think about what news is at its core. You know, we talk about news. You just think about news. Well, what is news? News is up-to-date information. It's up-to-date knowledge. Um, without news, you're really powerless, right? Without news, you don't know what's going on. If, if you don't know what's happening in the business world, you don't know what to invest in. Uh, if you don't know what's happening in politics, then you don't know how to vote. If, you don't, if you're a commander in an army and you don't know where the enemy is, then you don't know where to send your forces. In all of these situations, you need news. Well, the idea is that news empowers you. No, news allows you to make the right decision. It enables you to act. It, makes, it helps you to, to know what you should do next. The reason evangelism exists is that there is news that you have that other people don't have. There is news that you have that other people don't have. They don't know how to act because they don't know what's happened. They are powerless. They are ignorant. And I don't mean that in the insulting way. I mean that in the literal sense. They don't know. They need the news that you have. If you are a believer, then you are surrounded by people who need news that you may be keeping to yourself. And so what happens is this woman knows that there's an entire village here of people who need to hear the good news. And so so she tells them what Christ has done and where they can find him too. So she wants the lost to know about Christ. So, So what we see with this woman is this is a woman who tells others that she's met Jesus. She's a disciple now. She's had a change. She's proclaiming something that's touched her. We cannot proclaim a gospel that we have not been changed by. 
She is sharing her experience. What's actually happening here is more personal than just the communication of an objective thing that has happened. She is actually saying that this is something that's happened to her. She is sharing her experience. If these people know her past, then they know this is a very radical thing that they're witnessing. If the women in the town remember the fact that she dodges them all the time, the fact that she's not hiding from them anymore is making an impression on them. And she isn't just sharing bare facts. She isn't just saying, I, she, she isn't just saying, I had a change in my life. She's also saying, you come too. Come with me. I'll show you to him. I'll take you to him. I want you to have this thing so that, so that you can be changed too. You see, this is how evangelism is done. We take this thing that God has done for us. And we look at our friends and we look at our neighbors and we look at the people we meet and we say, he can do it for you too. Come hear a message at my church. It's a message that addresses everything I ever did. I have peace with God now. I have forgiveness now. I'm not ashamed now. You can have that too. That's That's what evangelism is. Take the thing that we got and where we got it. And tell other people what we had and what happened to us and where we found it. That's essentially what evangelism is. In fact, we should love the people we meet so much that we don't just intellectually acknowledge that God could do this. But we need to do something else, something we can be active in, which is praying for these people. Praying and pleading and yearning with God that this thing would be real in the lives of the people that we talk to. That becomes the experience of this woman in Samaria. You see, Jesus doesn't need food to eat. He sees a changed life right before his eyes. And it is beautiful to him. Who can eat at a time like this? That's the first thing that Jesus sees, a brand new witness. Second, Jesus sees a beautiful harvest. Some of the most important instruction Jesus gives his disciples happens after he has an encounter with somebody Um, Think of the rich young ruler. He has this conversation with the rich young ruler. He sends the rich young ruler away, sad, because he he was very wealthy and he had a lot to lose. And then after the rich young ruler walks away, Jesus turns to the disciples and he talks to them about why this thing went the way that it did. And he basically says wealth can create these obstacles. Well, something similar happens to that here. See, the woman leaves... And Jesus explains his disinterest in the food. He says, he says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. So he, he tells them they know how to tell when harvest time comes. Well, Jesus says the harvest time has come. He says the fields are white. Pessimism is always a temptation. It can be very easy to look around. Uh, Look at a world around us rife with unbelief and with skepticism and say, well, there goes the world. There goes the culture. They've rejected God. We just need to sort of huddle up and wait for it all to end. You know, that's a temptation. But Jesus has a very different perspective. He, He says the harvest is ready. You just have to tell people. It's very important to Jesus that, that the, the disciples not have a pessimistic attitude toward evangelism. He, he gives this command here. He says, lift up your eyes. 
See what's really happening. See what God is, is doing. Look at the need around you. Are there people around you that need to hear this news that you have that you've kept to yourself? Look at how ready people are to hear good news. They're thirsty for living water. In my experience, people do not know what Christianity teaches. And so because of that, we need to stop telling ourselves that no one wants to hear it. <laughs> they don't know what it teaches, so they don't know that they have anything to reject yet. Um, Jesus actually compares his people to reapers at harvest time. Um, think about what a reaper does, right? I, uh, a reaper, of course, swings their arms and they take up the harvest. They take up the crop. But, you know, today we don't have reapers. We have harvesters. We have combines. Um, I get, my, my dad gets two mentions in the same sermon. Uh, I think I owe my wife money every time I do that. So um, to make extra money, my dad would actually go out and he would, uh, he would harvest. He would drive the harvester. He would drive the combine during harvest time. And so I remember just as a little kid, I was maybe like five or six years old, being small enough that they would actually bring a tiny little kid chair and they would sit it in the cab of the combine. And then I would sit there next to him. And for just hours and hours and hours, we would just drive up and down the field, up and down the field. And then we would dump the grain in the back of the truck. And then we would keep going and then we would keep going and we would go until the whole field was, was done. And I just have great memories of watching just massive swaths of wheat just coming into the front of the, the harvester and then looking in the back as the auger would go and, and just watching all the grain go inside. And just how exciting that was to me as a little kid, just watching all that big, giant machinery work. And, you know, uh, it was fun. I love doing it. And I, 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 it makes me sad that, that, that uh, my children's dad doesn't drive a harvester so they can't sit in the cab with me. Uh, maybe somebody will just let my kids go to ride with a stranger in a combine someday. Who knows? Not a great idea. And harvest time is pretty much the easiest part of the, of the harvest, though. Now, the harvester doesn't think so, but if you're the farmer and you're the one that's done all the work up until harvest time, then you know this is true. The everything before the harvest is actually the most difficult part because what, is the, what does a farmer do the entire year? The farmer is consumed with planting and fertilizing, fighting off bugs, hoping that the rain doesn't ruin the crop, hoping and praying there won't be a hailstorm that pulverizes the wheat so that it's unharvestable. You see, once harvest time comes, all the hard work is done. The job of reaping or, or harvesting is cake. Compared to everything that it takes to get there. Jesus is telling the disciples, telling others the good news is really not difficult. It is really not painful. It is as easy as swinging your arm. It's as easy as swinging your arm. He has a very optimistic outlook on how people should respond to the gospel. I think this is a moment to reprove us if we have a pessimistic outlook on how people are going to respond to the gospel. If you're pessimistic about how people are going to respond to the gospel, please read what Jesus says here one more time and ask God to give you the mindset that Jesus has. Because he commands them, he commands us. He says, lift up your eyes. What's he saying? He's saying, your eyes are down here and they need to be up here. He says, where our eyes are affects how we cope and how we act. When we feel pessimistic, how do we deal with the, with the world around us? We escape. If we're pessimistic, we just try to escape. We just close our eyes. 
We bury our head in the things that might distract us from the bad that we see around us. And Jesus does not want that for us. He says, lift up your eyes. The more we understand God, the more we understand this, his world, the more we understand what he's doing in the world, the more empowered and motivated we're going to be to tell others what God has done for us because we'll see that he's still working. It's knowing God and having that knowledge that builds our confidence, says Jesus. Lift up your eyes. He wants that for the disciples. He wants that for us as well. Lift up your eyes. There is a harvest to be had all around us. He says, I sent you to reap. He didn't send us to plant. He didn't send us necessarily to water. He says, all you have to do is lift up your eyes and swing your arm. It is a beautiful harvest. Third this morning, we see a believing response. Jesus, of course, was already planting the seeds of optimism before they even got to the village to see what happens next. Now, note this. Um, Oftentimes, Jesus tells the disciples after an event what has happened. He would tell a parable to the crowd. Then he would explain it for the disciples in private. Or he would cast out a demon. And then he would tell them how it happened and how it worked later. But here he flips it. Before they get to the city, he tells them about the harvest. He tells them the fields are white. And then the text tells us there's a result. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So this woman is like the harvester. She just swung the sickle. She's been a believer for what, an hour? So it starts with her. John is very clear. There's a spiritual awakening happening in this Gentile territory. And it started with a single spark. This one woman with a checkered past tells everyone that her life has been changed by an encounter with the Savior. For some of the Samaritans, that's enough. The text says they believed in him because of her. So then the Samaritans invite Jesus to stay with them. By the way, if you think it was culturally dangerous for Jesus to share a cup with this woman, just imagine what the Jewish people would say after he stayed in the Samaritan town, sleeping in their Samaritan beds, probably eating their Samaritan food. This is Jesus really crossing the cultural barriers. It is Jesus risking his reputation among the Jews, but he decides, I'm going to do it. Why is he willing to do it? Because he says there's a harvest going on and the fields are white and ready. So first they believe because of the woman. Then verse 41 says they believe because of Jesus directly. And then finally, there's this capstone moment in verse 42 It's a really beautiful text. There's something really beautiful about this. They say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Listen to that. They say he is indeed the Savior of the world. They're very confident now after their encounter with this woman and her changed life, after meeting Jesus personally themselves because of her invitation, that this is true, that this is real, and that he really is the Savior. This is the way the gospel spreads. A person's life is changed. That person tells others what happened to them. That person meets Jesus for themselves, and then they believe in Jesus for themselves. As Christians, there comes a time in all of our lives where we need to be able to say something similar. If you're a covenant child, there is hopefully, there will hopefully be a day when you can say to your parents 
uh, maybe to your, your pastor, maybe to your Sunday school teachers, something like this. It is no longer because of what you said that I believe. I've met Jesus for myself now, and I know Jesus as my Savior. That's our prayer for all covenant children in this church, that you would be able to say that. I no longer believe because you said it. Now I believe for myself. It goes from being an overheard belief to being something that you know is true deep in your heart. That's what we want for all of you. Now, often sharing the gospel is met with hostility. I've met hostility a few times myself. But oftentimes, I really think for Christians, the hostility that we expect is only in our heads. We, we are very self-conscious. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of looking too radical or, or too extreme. And so we, we sort of tamp it down and, and we live our lives with pessimistic expectations. We don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to feel foolish. And we sort of make an assumption about how we think the gospel is going to be received. But let's be amazed. Let's be corrected by this. In the mind of a Jewish person, what would be more unlikely than for a town of Samaritans to begin following the Lord? And who's more unlikely to be the catalyst for that revival than a notoriously immoral woman? John wants us to see this. Jesus wanted us to see this. God using really the unlikeliest person you can imagine to transform the unlikeliest place you can imagine. So what John relates to us here has at least two applications for us. Uh, The first is a correction. The second is an encouragement. I want to end on both of these. First, there's a correction for us. Because if God ever does use you, or if God ever has used you in some way to share the gospel with another person, keep this perspective on what Jesus says here. He says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. If God has ever used you to to, to save someone, if he's ever used your testimony or your witness or your direction or something about your life to save someone, you've got to remember that you are almost certainly reaping where someone else has sown. Almost certainly someone else was planting seeds in that person's life. They were getting that ground ready, maybe even watering. And this passage today is is very humbling, right? Because there's no room for pride here. If he can use an uneducated Samaritan woman who may have actually been a prostitute to change her neighbor's lives, it's really not a matter of bragging if he uses you to do the same. That's the correction here. God intends to humble us. So don't be proud if God uses you. The second is this, though. This is the the encouragement I think God has for us in these words. Be willing to be that unlikely person who is used to change another unlikely person's life. Do not let your own self-doubt transform into doubt about what God can do. We dishonor God when we expect that he can't do something, even through the lamest sharing of the gospel that we could ever do. He can use the weakest presentation of the gospel anyone has ever heard to rescue someone's soul. And that is very comforting to me. (laughs) Just be yourself. Be truthful with the people in your life. That's what this woman does. If we're bashful or if we think we can't do it, God is offering us a correction this morning. He can use you. In fact, if you're a believer, 
It is his plan to use you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are often bashful people. And we're also an excuse-making people. We can think of a thousand reasons why maybe we shouldn't talk to that person or why we, we don't think talking to that friend will do much good or, or we fear starting up a, a new relationship with that person who just moved in. Our capacity to make excuses is inexhaustible. And yet the woman of Samaria, after she was transformed, did nothing of the sort. She walked into town. She told everyone about the forgiveness she found in Jesus. And she pointed them to the living water. And you used her to bring many people to the living water and wake people up. Would you use us like that, Lord? Would you bring those opportunities our way? We want to be used in your harvest, O God. So use us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.